HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers. Learn more at square.com slash go slash in the sauce. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with John Sherwin and Jay Jung Kim, co-founders of Hydrant, the rapid hydration powder taking on the sports drink category with their bright little packets of electrolytes. Originally a D2C business, Hydrant is popping up in more stores every week and has been featured in Forbes, Fox Business, and tons of other sports media outlets. Welcome, guys. I'm very happy to have you. Thank you for having us, Alison. We're, we're excited to be here. Yeah, we've been planning this for a little while, and you know, some things got in our way, but <laughs> <laughs> we won't let a pandemic stop us from recording a podcast. Um, right. So I'm going to, now that we're not really um, in a studio looking at each other, I've been told by Matt that it helps to sort of direct my questions a little bit. So John, I'll start with you. Um, Where are you and how are you and how are you doing? I'm in Brooklyn, um, which is where I live. I am doing fine. I've been been healthy through this. We're we're super lucky in that regard. And uh, um yeah, just kind of business as usual, surprisingly. Yep. And Jay? Uh, I'm in Manhattan with my dog, uh, staying healthy. So I love having co-founders on together because I've seen some really good partnerships and I've seen some um, not great partnerships. And I'm kind of curious, like, what makes the good ones tick? Um, and you guys seem like you have that down. Um, it just seems like you've divided... The work really well. You have really sort of complementary sort of personality types and interests. But let's back up a little bit and tell me a little bit about. I know you both grew up outside of the states, um, and something tells me Jay was a little bit more of an entrepreneurial type, and John 
maybe you were a little bit more of an academic type, but that's just me completely stereotyping you based on what you currently do for your company. So Jay, tell me a little bit about where you grew up, what you wanted to be, um, you know, how your, how your trajectory happened. Sure. Uh, so I was originally born in Seoul, Korea and moved to the States around 12. Um, you know, growing up, I was sort of brainwashed by my family that I was going to be a doctor. Oh. <laughs> I grew up in a very conservative, you know, doctor household. Um, but I think starting from high school, I became more interested in uh, business through mm-hmm. a, a friend talking about business. And um, since then, I've kind of became more interested in business and started to show an interest in business instead of uh, becoming a doctor. So right. studied business in undergrad and um, started to explore internships in business. So I kind of like switch switch uh, from being a doctor to business. Right. Okay. And then you, I think you have like the most financy, you were at McKinsey, you were, you know, you, you were like very hardcore business finance. Right. right. <laughs> um, I, I started my career as a consultant at McKinsey for two years and yep. rest of my career, I've stayed in private equity. Right. And you went to business school for three weeks? Oh uh, yeah. So uh, I was at Wharton <laughs> for business school for three weeks. Um, then met John along the way, um, begged the school and I was able to get my money back. Um, <laughs> That's great. And, yeah. I invested that into Hydrant and, you know, get the business going. Right. That's amazing. And John, you grew up in the UK. I did. Yeah. So, so I, I'm a kind of cultural chameleon. My mother's British, my father's American. So I was born here in the States, uh, and uh-huh. okay. briefly lived in Brooklyn, but spent the majority of my life in the UK uh, through the end of college. And it was shortly after that, that, you know, um, greener pastures over here in America lured me over <laughs> and I moved to the Bay right. Area to work at a software startup that made tools for scientists, which is very on brand for me because uh, as you alluded to right. earlier, <laughs> uh, I am uh, kind of of a science background. I studied biology at university and uh, really loved right. the sort of pursuit of, of, technology and knowledge. And then, so this is the folklore. The folklore is, is that you were both these really smart guys with kind of a similar idea coming at it from a little bit of, you know, John, maybe a little bit more science Jay thinking like more about the market. And then I don't know who, but someone genius introduced the two of you. And then rather than becoming competitors, um, you merged your companies together. Uh, is that folklore or is that true? Or is it just, is it the story? I'd say, I'd say that's, that's pretty accurate. Um, you know, we both, we both had our own thing going on. Um, I had sort of early version of the product available, uh, kind of, early version of the brand as well. A lot of uh, sharp edges that needed to be polished. And um, right. you know, I, I think I had got it to the point where I was starting to realize these areas that I hadn't thought about um, in terms of growing a business where I perhaps didn't have the experience or skill set um, that I needed to really like make the business boom fast. Uh, and so when I was right. introduced to Jay, you know, as you mentioned, his CV kind of speaks for itself. 
there's a ton of skills on there that I don't have. And we got to talking and I think um, we share firstly a vision for what this um, product and business can do. And secondly, we're very aligned on our core values for things like how we treat customers um, and and how we want to improve people's lives. And so it, it was right. kind of a no brainer. Um, the The timeline was very rapid from first meeting to, you know, Jay dropping out of business school and uh, putting his <laughs> tuition money in, which really, you know, kickstarted the growth. And you can see it on right. the graph. Uh, it just like it's practically straight up the growth curve <laughs> at that point. It's so great. And Jay, what were you working on? And who was this person that decided that the two of you needed to meet? So I was literally working on the same product. Um, and I was just really stuck on the, uh, the product development piece. I couldn't really nail the science. And, um, um, I knew this friend who actually, uh, worked with John a while back on some kind of a marketing project. Mm -hmm. And it was through her that I discovered a company Hydran, um, really early stage, really, you know, low sale volume. John was just trying to figure things out for himself. I was kind of stuck in my own way. You know, you know, John, John, you know, paused the story um, in a really nice way, but I might as well add it was a huge risky move on both sides because um, John and I didn't really know each other. Right. So, right. No, this. Yeah. I mean, this is great. Yeah. I mean, and, what month did you meet? Oh, my gosh. So we used to be really shy about this, but I think. At this point, it doesn't really matter. I would probably say from the point of introduction, <laughs> to signing a co-founder paper was three weeks. So like, <laughs> Wait, that's amazing. Three, three and a half. Yeah. And you know, that's it's kind of it like marriage. I don't know. Well, I you know, will tell you guys, there's there there's data, and I, I, I'm pretty sure it's accurate. I could just be completely blowing smoke. But from what I understand about marriage, there's no amount of time that guarantees that a couple will be successful. Oh, amen. Meaning that I agree with you. you can meet your bride-to-be and get married in a month and your actual odds of staying married are just as great as if you've lived together for 10 years. Like that, yeah. fr from what I understand, that's the data. So I can't imagine that it would be any different with a co-founder. Well, do you want to hear something even crazier? Yeah. Um. <laughs> Always. I think it was on the end of the first week of us getting to know each other when I suggest suggested that let's be co-founder, and John was like, "Yo, just chill. I don't know yet." Yeah. <laughs> Pump the brakes. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. not a very British way yeah. to approach life. Also, fortunately, yeah. he had an American mother. Yeah. Um, right, because I feel yeah. like that's not proper. Um, <laughs> so it took you three and a half weeks. But it was fairly obvious to both of you that, like, I don't, you know, the song, like, you've got the brains, I've got the looks, you know. Not that one of you has looks and one of you has brains, but you've got the well, science. Well, taller. Though, right, though, exactly. And he has the accent. But you have, like, one of you has the science, one of you has the, like, biz development. This is a good partnership. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think um, it's been... Yeah, proven out over enough time now that we're no longer shy telling the story, and, and that really speaks to no. How well I think it's gone. you should scream it from the rooftops. <laughs> um, okay, so after the three weeks or the three and a half um, weeks, uh, you know, Jay quit school. 
what what did day one look like? I mean, what did you just say? Okay, here's everything that I don't want to work on and t- I can't deal. Here you go. Or, you know, did you guys map out an org chart? Did you go to raise money immediately? Was there an auditing of some sort to be done on where the company was? You know, what were the first steps? So, uh, Jay, let me take a first stab and, and jump in if I okay. miss out pieces. So I, I think something that um, Jay likes to remind the team of is when when he first joined and it was just the two of us, we were in a, a shared office at WeWork. So there were other people mm-hmm. in the room. Um, and I think we, <laughs> at that stage, Jay was visiting as a guest rather than having his own desk. So it was, it was very right. scrappy. But we quickly kind of realized we need to think a bit bigger if we're going to grow at a fast pace. So we got our own office in there. And in terms of like auditing processes, there really wasn't much. Um, And I think that was partly because we sort of treated this as uh, sort of a refresh and a relaunch. Right. Now it was a new company. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, With the two of us on board. And so... You know, we, we weren't just saying, hey, this is what I'm going to work on. This is what you were going to work on. There absolutely was a period of time where we were sort of assessing each other's skill sets. And, and this wasn't kind right. of explicitly spoken. It was kind of just happening behind the scenes um, as we worked day to day. And you know, I'd be lying if I said everything was perfect from day one. Um, you know, right. certainly for me, I'd been working on Hydrant for quite a while at that point, And there were some things that needed to be like prized from my grip. Uh, by the right, uh, more course. competent Jay. But, uh, right. you know, we, we got there in the end. And I think largely now we sort of are better off for it um, now that we have this more clear division of labor. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And Jay, when you got your guest pass traded in for like your <laughs> big boy badge, what, like, what were you nervous to step on? Jo- like his toes or were you thinking like how did you approach it because you don't want to go in and be like everything you've been doing is totally wrong you know but yeah it's, how, a, what- it's a really good question it's a shame that i can't look at john's face right now for a signal <laughs> so i'll just speak <laughs> no it's actually yeah. great yeah yeah um i think there was definitely a little bit of that when you know when we first became partners um then it was really th- through a trial and error um, and honestly, I, I don't think we would have done it differently. We had to try a bunch of different things, go through the right conflicts to figure out like what, what, what makes sense. Yep. Um, I think in the beginning as a default, because of my background, I focus on fundraising. So yep. from the moment of becoming co-founders, I start to prioritize how I'm going to tell the story, how, how should I make a deck? Uh, uh, to pitch the seed round. And I think for the first six weeks, we, we focus on that and, and we raise our seed round. Wow. Great. Yeah. And John, had you been thinking like, I need to raise money for this or was it just still too early? No, I mean, I had absolutely been thinking about raising money and, and right. you know, trying to find smart people to talk to about what that process looked like, because I was really coming in totally blind um, without experience right. there. So the fact that Jay was able to very quickly just demonstrate, hey, like this is how this goes. Um, and he right. was able to step up there and, and I took a learning seat, which was fantastic for both of us. Yeah. No, it's great. I always say like, you know, if you've, if you've never made a deck or you, you don't know what, you know, these things aren't actually out there very obvious to, to learn, you know? And I think that's why people end up 
doing, you know, incubators and accelerators and spending money on consultants and, you know, but if you just have someone who's done it a bunch of times or looked at a bunch of them, they can kind of help you. I've had plenty of people call me and ask me for references of people who can make their deck for them. And I guess my all, my advice every single time is part of part of the process of learning about your own company and learning, you know, why you have the right to win wherever you are is is in making that deck, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, so I'm glad that I'm glad that that was. I mean, so that sounds like it was very early. Did you have any sales at that point, or was it just in- insignificant? So right. I think for us, it was really on the vision and a dream, and asking people to uh, bet on us. So I think right. in the beginning, it was mostly angels. Um, that I pers- personally knew. So right. a lot of them were purely betting based on personal relationships uh, right. and the trust. And then after we collected, um, I think on the first four weeks, we raised about 800K from individuals. And That's then, great. Yeah. And then and then by the sixth week, we raised about 1.7 total. And then wow. it was usually the seed, like institutional funds were the ones who were a little bit picky about our story. Yeah. A lot of them were like, how did you meet? You know, right. how long have you guys you known each other? And you couldn't tell the story. They're a mutual friend. Right, right. <laughs> um, so certainly the Silicon Valley types uh, right. were the most conservative. Um, right. But then we found the Sixers Innovation Lab um, to take a chance on us. And, and since then, it's been, it's been a phenomenal ride. Well, this is an interesting question because, you know, a lot of the people that listen to this are either early stage or pre early stage, but, you know, I've found it to be for, for companies like mine, and maybe it's different for a D to C business, you know, with sort of a proprietary formula like yours, I wouldn't even approach sort of the venture funds for a seed. Um, they don't generally want to play in that unless they're going to have like totally. a massive, massive exit, right? In which case, it's probably not, you know, a refrigerated item or, you know, it's probably not sort of like food in the way that we think of it. But I guess is it a little different because you guys are more in like the supplement world, which is actually something we're going to talk about. Yeah. It's- um, okay. Yeah. Uh, I was just going to say, I, I think the part of the reason, I, and Jay jump in as as our fundraising leader, uh, if I get this wrong, but uh, the way the way I would say is, you know, we we pitched a vision that was compelling to uh, some of those funds. Obviously, not all of them, uh, given that we didn't end up with any sort of large Silicon Valley investor in our seed round. Um, but right. you know, time and time again. At this point, it's pretty much a cliche of fundraising at the seed stage is it really is about team. And I think uh, what was tough Mm -hmm. for us was we couldn't share a lot of that story of how we met. But um, because we covered those very unique bases and there wasn't a ton of overlap between our skills uh, and we showed this sort of hunger to grow, uh, we were able to get people to to bet on us and the sort of the trajectory that we were looking for for this business. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. So when do you think, would you say, was the first, like, aside from the fundraise, which is amazing to raise that much, like, that way, you know, on a dream, uh, having met three weeks prior, but when was the sort of first, like, high five, okay, now 
I'm glad I quit school. I'm glad I put my life into this. I feel like this is a real product that's going to take off. When did you reach that point? Uh, I think so. it sounds like this question is for me because it relates to quitting school. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think the first moment for me was when we actually closed a seed round. Mm-hmm. And we, we were really happy with our investor base. That was the first moment. And I think the second moment was um, after we rebranded and then started to introduce more products, we started to see um, growth and uh, increase in uh, high percentage of customers repeating um, to use our product. Um, and right. that's when we realized that, you know, this is a real business. Right. I'm not totally, to- totally doomed. John, the same for you? Yeah, so I think for me it was um, we announced our seed round long after it actually happened. We announced it uh, May of 2019. And um, because of part of the help we got from the Sixers Innovation Lab, we had a lot of help with PR. We were able to get placements Mm -hmm. on um, Fox Business News in the morning as well as Cheddar. I watched it. Yeah, it was an experience. You actually watched it? Oh, I watched it. Of course I watched it. It was I do my research, Jay. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant you watched it live. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> no. I was like, what I are spent the chances? My days watching Fox Business Live. No, no, I can't say that I did. Um Okay, so we're going to take a little break. There were a couple of things that you guys mentioned in there that I want to get back to. Um, We'll take a little break and we'll come back um, and talk all about direct-to-consumer and sales and strategy. This episode is brought to you by Square. As a small business owner, I know how challenging this time is for all of us. We're faced with challenges we've never encountered before, and we're all uncertain about what's to come. Square has been working hard to help restaurants and businesses adapt by providing tools they need to be nimble and keep customers safe. One of these tools is Square Online Store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery. It's totally free to set up your online menu and pricing and easy to keep updated. If you're already using Square Point of Sale, you can automatically import your whole menu online. You can also start selling Square e-gift cards on your online store so customers can show their support. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's possible by visiting square.com slash go slash in the sauce. I'm back with Jay and John from Hydrant. Okay, so you guys know that I have like the least direct-to-consumer type of business that you can have. I have fresh sauces in pouches um, that are very grocery store-ish. But I am fascinated by the direct-to-consumer world, and I feel like obviously as you know, if I've learned anything in the last seven weeks, it's that I have to have a product that people can get however they want to get it, Um, which, you know, a lot of times includes on e-commerce, not necessarily from me, but we're certainly looking into that. So you guys clearly made a decision early on um, 
to focus on direct-to-consumer rather than on retail stores. And I'm assuming that you put some thought into that. So I'd like to hear why. Um, And then I'd like you guys to just kind of go over those sort of the keys to success of having a direct-to-consumer business. Like, you know, for us, I would say the key to success when you're in brick and mortar is velocities. It's not number of doors, it's velocities, it's the reorders, it's how many, you know, units per SKU per store per week. Um, You know, measuring what you're spending on trade against those velocities and making sure that it, you know, that that proportion is accurate. But for D to C, you know, I know that there are all these acronyms that I don't really understand. So can you just give me a little bit of background, maybe Jay, take on kind of why you, why you started the way you started and then how you evaluate what, you know, how it's successful. Sure. Um, I think at a high level, um, we started to focus on direct consumer really for uh, two reasons. One is to um, get a quick feedback loop so that we get we get to uh, learn a lot about um, our testing pattern. And second of all, uh, we wanted to really learn deep about our consumer purchasing behavior. So really focusing on the retention behavior so that we can figure out uh, what kind of marketing investments uh, we could make. Uh, so okay. No, so... Meaning, so those two things are basically like you wanted to know basically what people liked and then how often they were kind of comfortable getting it and and like what that purchasing pattern looked like. Is that the difference between the two kind of? Yeah. So I think like the first is the speed of getting a response. I think um, in retail, it's really yeah. hard to get a visibility on how consumers are um, enjoying our product. But I think with direct-to-consumer, you can quickly see how consumers are enjoying the product from various different metrics. You know, like the obvious ones ones are, you know, their actual reviews to Mm -hmm. are they actually spending money again to use your product again, right? right? And then you have access to your customers so you can reach out to customers as a startup to do a deep dive interview to figure out how they're using the product. What do yep. they like about it? What do they not like about it? What do they switch from um, into hydrant and all that kind of stuff. And was it ever a thought, you know, cause other kind of powders have like the big bucket of powder that you kind of meter out for yourself, but yours are in these like adorable packets that like, I personally have like 10 of them in my bag at any given time. Cause I actually dehydrate pretty easily. Um, and they're just these these perfect little packets that you kind of pour in. Was that, I'm imagining that was a plan. I mean, right? I, I'll thought. let John actually address the, uh, the question around packaging. Yeah, so um, the stick packaging is really mm-hmm. a convenience factor for the customer. So we kind of um, segment the product experience into both the, the taste and mouthfeel um, portion, the function of the product portion and the feedback loop you get from, is this product really working or, or mm-hmm. like, do I not feel any different? And then lastly, the packaging look and feel and the convenience that, you know, the packaging allows. So, um, bulk did cross our minds as an option. Um, there are a number of reasons to do it. It's great from a sustainability standpoint. Um, and it's great from a margin standpoint, but for us, 
really that convenience piece was so important out of the gate. We wanted to allow consumers to right. be able to use the product where they wanted. And I think you just gave a fantastic example saying that you keep right. them in your bag and, and you couldn't do that with the bulk. So no. I wouldn't rule out that we'd ever make one, but um, for now, right. you know, the stick is here to stay uh, and it's really served as well. Yep. And I think people, you know, people like me who aren't, I'm not a protein powder person. Like I'm not the consumer who has the big buckets of supplements that I spoon out for myself or make into smoothies. So this feels to me more like, you know, my pack of, if I was going to drink crystal light or, you know what I mean? Like it feel, it just, it, it, I think for, for maybe not like a full on athletic consumer, this just makes a lot of sense. If you're going on a bike ride or, you know, me, if I, even if I'm, I don't know, going on a long car ride, I don't want to be bringing 17 different things, you know? So it makes, I think, I mean, I, I love, I love the convenience of the packaging, but going back to the D to C stuff. Um, so what are, you know, what would you say is the number one thing you're looking at? Is it just simply who's repeating a purchase or is it how much you've spent on getting that customer and, and how much they're then spending on the site or, you know, how, how do you, how do you think about it? So I think there are a lot of, um, important uh, KPIs, you know, mm -hmm. the obvious, obvious ones starting from customer acquisition. Um, but we really like to uh, nerd out um, on our cohort analysis. We really like to look at, you know, different ways to look at their repeat behavior. So not only looking at what percentage of customers are repeating, how often are they repeating or how quickly are they repeating um, mm -hmm. to understand their consumption behavior. So I think what we really like to focus on is to have a, a, a lot of different various cohort analysis to look at uh, retention in various ways. And is that does part of that, because I don't know if I'm on a subscription or if I'm not at this point, but is part of the idea of getting someone to subscribe similar to like a subscription anywhere where, you know, you kind of have it, them locked in and you don't have to keep trying to win them every time and remind them that they like you. Is that, is that the idea? And can you, you can get a subscription, but you don't have to is the idea on the site, correct. right? Correct. But we do uh, value subscription. So we, we actually really focus on uh, building the subscriber base just to kind mm -hmm. of give you an indication on how much we focus on. I think when we first started the business, we didn't really focus on building a subscriber base. So, you know, call it maybe like 10% or 15% of our monthly transaction was in subscription really in the early days. But now I think an average of the monthly transaction volume, about 50% of the transactions is uh, subscriptions. Right, right. Which makes sense. Um, okay, and then Amazon. So I guess I just don't really, why would, if you could own your customer and you can have all this information on them. Are you, are you guys are on Amazon? Yes. Correct. But um, what's the, how do you think about Amazon versus like your own direct to consumer channel? Like, is it just a search engine essentially? 
Are you hoping that people find you on Amazon but then buy you on your site? Is it fine if they buy you on Amazon? Does it cost the same, you know, at the end of the day? Like, yes. how, do you, how do you kind of think about those two different things? It's a really good question. And I think we had a lot of people asking us this question, especially during the seas days, especially the Silicon Valley investors. Mm-hmm. Um, from our perspective, it serves a couple of purposes. Uh, one is a um, search vehicle. We believe that consumers who are actively shopping on Amazon are a little bit of different demographics. So I think it helps us to discover a new customer base. So that's mm-hmm. the one piece. Um, second piece is that um, if you really like our product and if you want to get uh, to get the best deal, our website is the cheapest option. You know, right. if you were to subscribe on our website, drinkhydrogen.com, um, that's the best deal you're going to get better than mm-hmm. uh, on Amazon. And lastly, I think a lot of the consumers who try a new brand on a, on a retail setting, you know, they can either go back to the retailer to get the product, but a lot of time they will search for that brand on Amazon. Um, so right, I think just to from, put it in their cart with all the other things they're getting. Exactly. So right. I think to kind of um, make it really easy for the customers who got to know Hydrant through retail setting to come back uh, and, and repurchase, I think Amazon right. is also a, a good platform for that. And then how do you think about stores? You know, was that always in the plan? Did it come up sort of later? And how are you finding it? And I guess going on to that, you know, in terms of a retail strategy, I mean, we've had this discussion about the sauce so many times on the show, but, you know, because we're basically creating a new category and most people don't think of sauce as a refrigerated fresh product, we tend to either be like with a dairy buyer, a deli buyer, or a produce buyer, and very rarely with the produce buyer. So we, as a vegan sauce product, end up in the dairy buyer's kind of set, um, which is candidly kind of confusing for them as they're trying to figure out how to handle refrigerated products, but also kind of confusing for the consumer because we're not in the same place in every single store and every single retailer. Um, and it's something we think of as you know an asset and a liability in the sense that there aren't other fresh sauces. It makes us unique. But if you're looking for sauce in the store, you're not necessarily going to the refrigerated area by you know, the yogurt. Um, so... You guys, I because I've looked around, there are, I don't think of you as like in the vitamin area. Um, there's the water sort of sports drink area, but there aren't necessarily powdered formats in a lot of those sets. So when you were, I guess this is a double kind of question as I tend to do, one, I'm assuming you were always thinking this will be in stores once we get, you know, once we understand who our consumer is and get that feedback loop, like you mentioned. But two, as you're building out your strategy, you know, who is your ideal buyer? Where do you ideally want to be in the store? And how is that working out? So I'll I'll address the second question first. Um, In terms of the typical buyer for our type of product, I agree with you. I think intuitively, a lot of consumers are assuming that this would be in the water section or sports drink section. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
I think because of the form factor, a lot of time, the primary buyers are vitamin and sports nutrition buyers. Right. So what we are trying to do is if, um, if we're not able to get to the uh, water buyer, then we will focus on a strategy to um, get a secondary placement merchandising or build a display around the water aisle um, right. through like a different product like uh, cliff strips to, to kind of right. hang a cliff strip around the water section right. to hang our pouches. Um, on, and to, to address the first question, uh, in terms of like the accounts, you know, I like to kind of start um, this by addressing that there's a lot of playbooks that people talk about when it comes yeah. to retail. I think the one that's been the most popular for the past like 10 or 15 years was, you know, really focus on natural premium yeah. um, <clears throat> on a specific region, blah, 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 blah. You know, when we first started Hydrant, um, we just assumed that playbook was the right playbook. But then as we started to do more research and look at the numbers, industry data, and model things out, um, we realized that we need to create our own playbook. So right. um, we aren't necessarily thinking about what are other brands doing that's working for them. Um to really like apply their case studies on us. But what we're trying to do is to really evaluate on each retail account, where do we have the highest probability of winning? Yep. And and really focus on how can we double down to really crush after launching in this retailer. So we're less yep. focused on getting to the retailer that everyone else wants to get into. Mm-hmm. We're really focused on accounts that we're going to have the biggest win and then making sure that we're going to win there. You know, it's so funny. I was just talking to someone today about this because, you know, I am, you know, John Lawson was on the show and, you know, he and Pat Jamey and there, you know, there's like a bunch of people who I've interviewed, even Mike Kerbin, Vita Coco, like core than more. You know, it is that playbook. It's like you start in your 14 New York Whole Foods, you move to your region, then you open a few more regions, and then you go global. And then after you kind of crush it in the natural channel, you move out into conventional. Um, the problem, I think, is for New York brands, There is it's challenging to own this region because the we don't have that many stores. And it's like... Once you get the Whole Foods stores in the region, you know, there's a lot of like smaller independents that have eight stores here, five stores here, two stores there. But it's an unusual region to do that kind of um, strategy with. So I, for one, you know, we kind of, we followed it with Whole Foods, but now we're going straight to like very large conventional retailers Mm -hmm. who understand the product who are eager, you know, to like satisfy their consumer, who aren't really that scared of the price point. And I think they're much more willing to take a risk now on sort of that natural premium product than they were several years ago because they know it's how they compete in kind of the new world of, you know, of consumer goods, right? Like grocery stores are scared of direct-to-consumer they're scared that millennials are going, you know, away from their stores and they know that they have to have these products that are, you know, new and interesting and kind of like on trend 
on their shelves and they're willing to do it now in a way that I don't think they were willing to do it, you know, five, 10 years ago, which was why that playbook kind of happened that way. But, you know, you see brands going straight to Costco and skipping over the whole thing. Or, you know, you see brands going to sort of the bigger conventional retailers and doing really well and not necessarily staying kind of in their local region for three years before they do that. Um, I I think it's, you know, going to happen more and more because I think there are more brands that are... I think the I think the buyers are more willing to do it now. I guess yeah. that's the point. What, what, one thing to add is like even if you were to get a perfect match, you know, uh, on a demographic of a particular retailer that everyone wants to get in, I think the question you want to ask is, objectively speaking, how competitive is the shelf set? Like from a shopper's right. perspective, like is your product standing out? Right. So like, yes. From objective objective assessment point of view, that retailer may be a great retailer, and a demographic may be a perfect match. But if you don't believe you're going to win in that account, mm-hmm. is that the right bet you want to make right. you know, versus versus another one? And then you really guys, important. I mean, you're in this position where you can be at airports, you can be at train stations, you can be in hospital drugstores, you can, I mean, you could be everywhere. Um, you know. We certainly can't be. Um, so, offices. yeah, for sure, offices. So, I mean, you have you have food service, and then you have all the different sort of channels. I mean, health food stores, but also like those vitamin stores. And um, so, how did you break it down? Like, do you have a hit list kind of, and you just kind of pick them off? Did you build a sales team? Speaking of, yeah, we actually have one salesperson. <laughs> so right. I wouldn't call it a team yet. It's basically <laughs> him and myself scrapping, right. getting scrappy. Um, in terms of a hit list, we do definitely have our North Star list, um, but we really prioritize, you know, based on a couple of different variables, including um, uh, answering the question, can we really win in this shelf set? Um, right. I think that's the most important piece. We look at who's there, uh, what is their price point, um, what pack size, and price point can really win there. What would be our marketing strategy? And then we'll run a return invested capital analysis on all kinds of um, any investment that we want to make. And and we want, we want to prioritize the accounts that we believe uh, we're going to get the highest return. Yep. I also think going back to what you were saying, you know, some of the larger retailers are very willing to have the conversation with emerging brands around what we want, you know, totally. and I think that I think if you build a relationship with them, you know, you can say, listen, I'm not ready for a thousand stores. I'm going to really like be able to do well in 300, you know, and preferably in this, you know, geographic region or preferably in this demographic region, because this is who my consumer is. And they're more willing to sort of listen, I think, at this point. Um, Yeah. But I think what you're talking about also is sort of these like almost um, coming at it with sort of a, a who you are and how you sell best and and where you will win. And I think a lot of brands are just so excited that someone wants them that they take on accounts that they probably shouldn't or they're sort of looking at that like how many doors and they're just keeping, you know, 
trying to add doors to satisfy someone, um, but they're not necessarily the right accounts. So right. I think going in, like creating sort of your your conditions for selling. Like for us, we won't go into an account unless we have a minimum of three SKUs. We we just it won't it won't work. We've seen we get lost. People already are like, what's that thing in a pouch? Once you kind of hit three, then all of a sudden it's like you own you own your space a little bit. Um, so if someone can't give us that, then we wait until the next year or whatever it is. To come. Kind of- um, Build yeah. on that. I, I, I do think a little bit of failure is necessary for people to really learn. Like yep. you yeah, probably sure. only learn that through a failure, right? Yeah, absolutely. For new brands, they can't know all these, right? And, no. And also, if everyone is listening to all of their advisors and all their investors, take, try to incorporate like 50 different opinions into one. Honestly, that's a recipe for disaster. So, like, yep. I think there are a couple things where you do have to take a bet and fail and learn yeah. and uh, like fail successfully so that you really kind of go through what went wrong and how can I apply these learning to be more successful in my next attempt. I right. think that process is definitely necessary. So, um, you know, I think for other founders, I would encourage people to um, not really view these retail decisions as like, if I fail this, I am totally doomed where my business is like bankrupt. Like, right. yes, there are certain accounts you don't want to jeopardize that. But um, I think a lot of time certain decisions are uh, uh, reversible and then you can force correct your mistakes. Absolutely. And that actually goes to why you don't start off like with, you know, globally with Whole Foods when you haven't like totally gotten your product organized or your packaging cleared up. You know, because you are going to be making so many mistakes along the way and having to change things that it's just easier to change them in 40 stores than 500 stores, you know. Um, All right. We have a couple minutes left, but I do feel like there is some exciting news that you are going to announce. (laughs) Um, is that a cue for asking us to share what um, it is my cue for asking you to share (laughs) your exciting news what's next for the business (laughs) what's going on (laughs) awesome well great question Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, we recently closed our series a round um, Ooh, congratulations. Really excited. Um, fantastic investors. You actually know um, the lead investor. I do know the lead investor. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, I've heard cool. he's a very smart guy. <laughs> uh, he is. So Coefficient Capital um, led the round. Franklin Isaacson um, <laughs> is one of the founders of the fund. Um, and along with the, with the fund, we have um, exciting co-investors like RX3 Venture, which is a fund um, founded by Aaron Rodgers, the NFL player, and um, really exciting angel investors such as Scott Norton um, from Sir Kensington. Yeah, um, sure. Wasn't he on this podcast? He was on the podcast, yeah, yes. Yeah. He's great. Um, and we have a lot of other CPG um, uh, CEOs. Amazing. Um, and then yeah. with that Series A money – are you building a bigger team? Are you innovating more products? Are like, are you growing everything out more? You know, what's yeah. the big, what's the vision for the next couple of years? I think there are really four things that we're prioritizing um, uh, from from the from the Series A. 
One is to invest in building a world-class team. And second mm-hmm. is to uh, support our go-to-market strategy. And third is to invest in product innovation. Um, and fourth is to invest in analytics to really double down on our um, uh, data-driven uh, DNA. Right. And John, speaking of product innovation, are you like mad scientist kind of, you have 85 things up your sleeve that you're just like, you can't wait to get in the lab to play with? Or are you, is there a pretty clear roadmap of like the next two to three products? You know, it's a, it's a mix of the two. Uh, and I think one of the nice things about raising this round and growing the team is as we grow the team, we, Jay and I are able to go from being quite sort of generalist in our approach to running the business to getting mm-hmm. more specialist in the areas where we really can move the needle the most. And in my right. case, that is the product side of things. So um, yes, we have a few product line extensions coming out later this year. Um, we have some new flavors coming out as well. That was something that you know my science brain in the early days of Hydrant didn't really think so much on the flavor right. side. We had a- Why does it yeah, matter? It like, right. They're getting the function. <laughs> this thing is great. Right. Um, and you know, very quickly- we we heard from customers look this is cool but I want I don't want the same flavor every single day um, right. and over t- I do I want I you can look at my orders I get lime <laughs> the original I get the lime original. I have I have lime every morning I usually have a second lime I sometimes I reach for a grapefruit and then I'm like nope I'm just gonna have lime <laughs> it's funny I'm really a creature of habit but I understand that people want other flavors. So yeah. I know I'm an anomaly <laughs> there. So other flavors and other functions? Yeah, absolutely other functions. I think, you know, like I said, we we listen pretty carefully to our existing customers and kind of figuring out where in their life we can provide a solution that's hydration forward, um, but possibly providing support in other ways too. And, and this is where we really lean on our um, kind of science DNA as a company. So we have a process for researching every single ingredient that goes into our product. Um, We create effectively our own proprietary database of all the academic research on any given ingredient um, going back, you know, in some cases as much as 50 years. Uh, And we have a group of scientists, usually PhDs, some of them are even doctors who will build this analysis of all of that literature that ultimately leads us to a place where we can say, okay, you know, for our, let's say our energy skew, for example, um, we wanted to add L-theanine because the studies around L-theanine being mixed with caffeine and what that can do for your alertness, your focus and calm were just so strong. And, you know, from that, we were able to say, okay, 200 milligrams is the amount per serving where we're really hitting the sweet spot. No, that's very, very cool. I have some thoughts for women over 40. We'll talk. Awesome. We are very open to hearing it. Yes. I I really, I do. Just remind me. (laughs) Um, No, it's true. There are a couple things that we just, we need that we're not getting. Um, Okay, guys, last question. John, what do you wish you had known when you started? Um, So I I think it's probably fairly cliche at this point. I I wish I'd known that... um, you should launch as fast as you possibly can to start getting real feedback from people who aren't your family and mm-hmm. friends. And that, yep. you know, being a little bit embarrassed about the first product is totally okay. We are on to our... It's like the first pancake. Yeah, totally. We're, we're on our version yeah, three of our core product at this point, um, just right. through listening to consumers. And, and those early consumers are still with us. So 
um, you know, yeah. they've, they've joined us on the journey. Absolutely. And Jay, what about you? Your best advice to all the founders out there? <laughs> so I actually have two, two advices. Um, oh, great. <laughs> one is um, don't let other playbooks really distract you. I think a lot yeah. of people talk about, quote, unquote, what crush for them. And, you know, chasing for a silver bullet can really waste your time and resource. Mm-hmm. Um, context matters so much and the time is changing. So um, Absolutely. So at an early stage, time and capital is really important. So really be cautious of that. Um, yeah. The se- second point is around people. I think for us, we believe the number one driver of success is finding the right people to get on the bus. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of time people can get hung up on direct industry experience mm-hmm. and just get blinded by like, oh, this person worked at vitamin water. All of a sudden, by hiring this person, we're going to, you know, exit yep. four point whatever billion dollar. Like, you know, it, that, that's, it, that's not how it works. No. <laughs> so I think, it's so funny because yeah. Chris Kirby was on a couple of weeks ago and he said basically that what he kind of wished he had known was that he could build a team from the ground up as opposed to bringing in all of these sort of oh, totally. experts to try to hack it together because – Something gets lost along the way, um, so I think I think that's like a, a sort of adjacent to your point, you know, people, and a lot of times people that have come from these big amazing places they haven't built it from the ground up, so, and they've built something else from the ground up, and it's not this right. thing. So that's, I think you're, uh, yeah. you're right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Anyway, guys, I just want to thank you so much um, for coming on. And everyone, you can find Hydrant at Drink Hydrant on Instagram. And your website is? Drinkhydrant.com. 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 All right, Matt, thank you so much for bearing with me again. And I'll be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.